Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. It's a custom at some restaurants to allow their staff a shift drink. This is usually a beer or a glass of inexpensive wine at the end of the night. And the custom helps to promote a familial vibe among the staff while also educating them firsthand about the products that they sell the most often. It's also considered a type of benefit that is of low cost to the restaurant. As a server or backwaiter, you aren't likely getting any kind of healthcare package, but a shift drink is usually welcome after a grueling shift of running around. Not all restaurants offer shift drinks, but some do. But when did shift drinks become a thing? Well, giving a ration of wine or cider to harvest workers has been pretty commonplace throughout the ages. But some of the earliest shift drink laws came about in the 1700s BC, when Babylonian king Hammurabi decreed some important laws that set into motion a daily beer ration. If you were a regular blue-collar worker, you would get two liters. But if you were a high priest, you might get up to five liters a day. Cuneiform tablets from 1785 BC show that daily wine rations were given to the Assyrian royal household, about a glass a day for each man, including the menial servants. In the seafaring days, drink rations became a part of daily military life Drinking water would become microbial and filled with algae, so seamen would get a ration of beer or rum to add to the water to kill the germs. Rum became the beverage of choice in the British Navy, and seamen received a ration of about half a pint a day. To keep discipline in check, some captains began giving out the rations already watered down. The rum wouldn't last as long this way, and this prevented hoarding and binging. At the start of World War I, in France, the 151 Line Infantry Regiment, their water rations spoiled and it caused all sorts of health problems. In 1914, the infantry got a new ration of a quarter liter of red wine, and they called this the Supreme Consoler. They also got coffee, and one canteen couldn't hold both rations. So they'd team up, and one would carry the wine in their canteen, while the other would carry the coffee. But military shift drinks haven't always been the wisest benefits. 
As you can imagine, drunkenness can seriously affect the safety of your group. In 207 BC, the Carthaginians were in a drunken stupor and were easily overtaken by Roman soldiers. Then in 97 BC, a regiment of Roman soldiers were killed in Spain when they got too drunk to post a guard. In the 1800s British Navy, if you overdid it, your punishment was six water grog, or six parts water to one part spirit. That's some serious dilution. But in 1862, the American Navy ended the rum ration. The sailors were, however, encouraged to drink loads of coffee instead. So next time you're having a beer after work, remember the long vestiges of shift drinks throughout human history. And if you've had one too many, try not to go into battle. Try not to operate any ships. And maybe see if your friend has any coffee left in their canteen. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Gaia Gaia from Piemonte on the show today. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. So you're the oldest daughter of Angelo Gaia, Mm -hmm. the vintner and uh, winery owner in Italy. Yes. And you were born in 1979. Correct. (laughs) What was it like growing up with dad? I mean, what was the winery like in the the early 80s? Ah, it was... uh... I think that when you live in a little village like Barbaresco with 600 people... mm... You grow, it's like being in a, how do you call them? Those uh, glass balls, uh, snowballs, okay? Uh, it's, a mo- it's, a, it's a word on, of, of his own. So I didn't really know what my father was doing, actually. I was not, uh, didn't know what he represented uh, for the world. I, um, I grew up with a father that was uh, very strict. There are two things that my father two words that are the favorite words of my father that are rigor and discipline. So he was that kind of, uh, of uh, um, father, rigor and discipline. And my mother also, she doesn't speak English, she doesn't travel much, but she's very important because uh, 
when my father was traveling and in the past was traveling much more than today. He was staying away months. When he was coming to visit US, he was staying away for three, four weeks. So um, my mother is not only a wife and, and mother and a cook, but she's uh, really also a businesswoman because uh, she takes care of the daily job all the administration, the paycheck. So I grew up with two parents that they were very busy in working, but that uh, they were very present, that uh, I felt very strongly near me. You chose to follow in their footsteps and work with the winery. Did they push you in that direction or did you did you decide to go that way yourself or what happened? I think that, no, it was, was not like that. I, I think that, um, for example, when I come to US, I meet people uh, that they studied uh, engineering or they studied law and then they completely abandon uh, all the studies and, and the big efforts that they did at their job just to follow a big passion that they have. And, and so they move into wine and they start making wine. And I'm amazed by these people because they, they really make an important choice moved by passion. So for me, it was a bit different. And I admit that uh, was not yet for, for passion. And now I love my job and uh, I'm very passionate. But I started more for uh, really for the love of my family because uh, because we are a close family and because I grew up with uh, my father, my mother and my, my grandfather and I didn't want to waste uh, everything that they did. Every day I saw him doing efforts and and, and working hard and I didn't want to uh, uh, to finish all, uh, all of that. I wanted to continue. Um, also, when you live in a village again like Barbaresco, everything has to do with wine. So it's not, uh, it's not easy to uh, uh, get out from, maybe if you live in New York, you can develop a lot of other um, passions and you can discover that you love so much art or music or whatever else and you go by different paths. When you live in Barbaresco, it's not like that because it's all about wine. 600 people, uh, everyone makes wine. I always say this thing that in, in the elementary school of Barbaresco that closed in 96 because there were not enough kids anymore, but uh, every kid uh, in one specific day of the, of the year, they were going at school with a plastic bag full of grapes. And uh, every day, every year, each class was uh, making his own wine, making his own grappa. And that was science class, learning about distillation, about fermentation. So um, it's really a brainwashing that starts since you are very little. And then my parents, they always, uh, I saw that they were not coming back home uh, complaining about their job. So I always grew up thinking that was a beautiful job and that uh, I was just listening. But one day I wanted to do the same thing. And how did you first get involved? Well, when I was uh, 14, 15, 17, it was just a... Uh, helping them maybe to fairs uh, or a little bit in the office, uh, welcoming some people that were coming at the winery, but there was nothing cerebral really behind. And then when I had to choose a school uh, for, uh, excuse me, a university, actually I decided to go for economy. So I didn't go for uh, winemaking or agronomy because uh, at the time I was a bit different from today. And at the time I, I was feeling that Barbaresco was too little and that uh, I couldn't picture my life always in a village of 600 people. And so I thought maybe if I study economy, I will escape uh, and I can be able of also traveling a little bit and I can take care of that part of the business, the commercialization. So I, uh, I studied economy 
Then uh, after the university, I lived for nine months in San Francisco. And uh, again, I was working in the commercial side. I did a little bit of training with the Southern Wine and Spirit, uh, big distributors, uh, with uh, a wine shop. Uh, and then finally, I, I came back uh, to Barbaresco. And now I would, there are there, every place in the world I like. There is not one place that I saw that I didn't find welcoming. But I chose to live in Barbaresco and, uh, and so I... Uh, I made my uh, my choice. When I came back in 2004, my first responsibilities were in the office um, where I could do maybe less damage. And so just uh, get in contact with my importers, uh, make the allocation, start traveling, promoting, uh, all of that side. And that still takes a lot of, uh, of my time. Mm, I love anyway everything that has to do with my job. And... Uh, I listen a lot and I, I'm often participated to uh, the, what happened inside the winery, what happened in the vineyard. So right now I, I give also a bit more of my contribution. It's not only working in the office and being detached from, from the production. I taste my wines every day. And, uh, and then when I go back home from my travels, I love traveling because I, I get a lot of inspiration. I, I meet different people. I can slightly change the perception that I have of my wines. So when I go back home, we talk all together. And uh, maybe I, I, I focus on, on, on a wine and uh, I explain that uh, I think that the wine should uh, improve a certain quality or there is something that we should try to avoid and, and have less present into the wine. And then by all these discuss discussions, uh, we start thinking about a new experiment that we can do in the vineyard or inside the the winery to achieve those goals and um, I, I participate from uh, in, in this part and what are some of those experiments what has happened over the last few years as perhaps climate has changed or as perhaps um, tastes have changed in different markets uh, a lot of things. Uh, the first uh, changement that we did, and our many were in the vineyards from uh, 2004 to to today. We have been a we have been able, for example, of uh, working on our own compost. Uh, since uh, 2004, we produce our own compost, starting from manure and then uh, uh, processed by worms that we nest and uh, we grow in knowledge. And we understood also by of uh, you how to use. Uh, uh, all the wood that we cut during the pruning, uh, the stems, uh, part of the skin, everything is reused. Everything that we take out from the vineyard, we bring it back and reach the by compost, which is something alive. You know that when compost, when, when manure is elaborated by a, a living animal, by a worm, what comes out is so rich of micro element that what you use in the vineyard is life. You, you spread life and... Um, and it's very different from how we were doing before 2004. Also, we totally changed uh, from, this was uh, even a bit earlier, from 98, 99. Uh, we changed uh, all the canopy of, uh, of the vineyards. So we faced, uh, we, we saw that the problem was not anymore that uh, we were not reaching enough uh, sugar into the grapes, but the problem was uh, to get to a perfect ripeness, uh, phenolic uh, and technical. Uh, and in Piemonte, for example, if you come and you see the vineyards, they, they have a very high canopy. Usually people live two meters of, uh, of canopy because Piemonte is a region that has never been historically so lighted, quite foggy. So you need a lot of leaves to make photosynthesis and to bring 
bring sugar down in the grapes. But in the last years, we noticed that that is not the problem anymore. And so we need much less leaves. So, for example, we drop down uh, the uh, size of the canopy is uh, shorter. Also, we learned about uh, uh, doing differently the topping. It's true that in the past there was uh, much more topping done because by topping, every time you cut uh, the leaves that are on the top of the plant, which are the oldest one, and they are those kind of solar panels that are not working so well anymore, by cutting those, uh, the plant uh, pulls out other baby leaves, much more vigorous, that they do much better the job and again they accumulate sugar into the grapes. So by topping and by doing that intervention three, four, five times a year, you get more concentration into the wines, which is not uh, uh, our concern anymore. So for example, this year we topped uh, on some vineyards, we didn't top not even once and uh, in uh, nothing has been topped uh, twice. It's a big difference respect to uh, 10 years ago, we were acting very differently. Or also the way of doing uh, green harvest uh, has changed because there was more green harvest done in the past, now less. Uh, we do a very short pruning and then we do a, a selection of bunches uh, already when they develop. So already in, uh, in, in May, uh, in June, and that's it. And then, and then we have also a team that is historic and that uh, is wised. So, you know, we, we don't work with cooperatives, uh, we don't work with the seasonal workers, but it's a team that is uh, only working with us. We have 70 people in Barbaresco, 22 are second generation, so they are experienced. They know how to treat each plant uh, differently, where they must, they have to maybe touch a little bit the bunch because some plants, they make one kilo branch. And so maybe you have to cut a little bit uh, the end that never remains always very acidic never ripes or uh, to another plant maybe yes you, you still have to do an intervention and do a little bit of uh, green harvest but not uh, to cut down the quantity not always systematically maybe mm, by doing this cleaning of the plant in uh, in uh, in may and in june uh, we, we it's already the the, the most that uh, that we need to do and then the following intervention are done just to avoid the spread of sicknesses if one bunch is very close to another so much less uh, systematic than, uh, than in the past. What else? Uh, and despite this year has been a very rainy year, imagine that from January to June in Barbaresco, in, in Piemonte, we had all the amount of water that usually comes down in a year. We had 800 millimeter of uh, rain coming down in six months instead of 12. Despite all this uh, rainy um, climate that we had, we still have been able of not using any chemical products and also only using sulfur and copper. We had to do a little bit more use of sulfur suffering in copper than not what we did last year or in 2000 and, um, and 2011 but, but still I think is a good result that came thanks to the fact that in these last years uh, we worked uh, in, in a good direction the plants uh, were able of, uh, of, of uh, facing uh, difficulties more than in the past. Also, we completely changed the way of uh, managing uh, the grass between rows. So you were coming to our vineyards uh, 10 years ago and they were uh, much more uh, precise, uh, completely topped, uh, perfect, uh, with not even a leaf uh, dropping right or left, uh, with the grass uh, completely cutted like a, like a garden. And uh, 
we really, I, I think that the global warming pushed us to uh, do more experimentation and find a new way of keeping a vineyard in balance. Today you come in the vineyards and maybe in July or, or August you can find very high grass and you can find, uh, as we don't top on some vineyards or we top only once, uh, you can find more leaves. Uh, as I said, the vineyards are more hippie than they were a uh, few, few years ago. So we changed a lot of things uh, in, in the way we work. In terms of leaving grass between the rows, what does that mean for the soil? Allora, so all uh, little by little we understood uh, that uh, how how to work in order not to do a manipulation on the plant. Manipulation, of course, comes from Italian, from money, that means hand. So manipulation means putting the hand on, on the plant. So we, we grow in understanding how to work in order not to put the hand on the plant, but to manage the soil in order to have the plant naturally uh, behaving as we would like uh, the plant to behave. For example, with the grass, uh, in the past, the problem was that uh, there was too much water uh, into the soil. So a way to take out all of that water was uh, to constantly cast the, cut the grass. As soon as the grass was growing a little bit, uh, we were cutting it uh, so that by cutting it, uh, the roots uh, they were again drinking to grow the grass again. And as soon as the grass was growing again, we were cutting it so that the roots of the grass they were drinking again and was a way to take the water out. Now our problem is that uh, we have to keep the humidity into the soil. So apart from this year, but um, so it means that we let the grass grow and as old as the grass gets, the less vigorous it, it becomes, the less it's gonna drink water. Little by little it's gonna slow down. So it's not taking out the humidity from our soil. And then we can go with the big roller, we can bend it. The, by bending it, uh, the, the, the grass becomes like a hat from the soil, protects it from uh, the heat that you, we have in July and August. So you can go in August, you can put your hand under the grass with the finger, just by softly moving the soil, you see that you can dig it. It's not like a concrete dry by, by the sun. So it's also a way to protect more the biodiversity, the insects, the life that stays uh, in that soil. Is that a problem with, you know, tractors and the compacting of soil over time as tractors pass through yeah. over and over? Every time uh, we need to, 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 uh, to, to get on a tractor and get out from the winery and go to the vineyard, we have to think many, many times, uh, is it really needed? Because when you get out from with a tractor and you go in the vineyard, you go to do something, you go to do a treatment uh, or you go to top. Uh, so anyway, you are doing some kind of intervention and you have to think if it's really needed. Second, you use energy, which is not a very clean energy. And uh, third, uh, they, uh, they really compress uh, the soil. And we always work to keep the soil as soft as, uh, as possible. Even in Piemonte, where the hills are very steep, uh, we can't really go with the incredibly light machine because they are tanks. It's very dangerous when you go on very steep hills, especially in April. But even in the summer, the, the tank can, can be much more safe for the people that, uh, that work. And so they are heavy. And so we have to try to go there as, uh, as less as possible. Um, yeah. And what about if there's more ripeness for the leaves and the grapes? Does that also mean that the stems are getting riper? Yes. In fact, uh, I think that by having more uh, balanced uh, and uh, healthy soils, uh, the, 
the plants they are able of absorbing more naturally all the ingredients that they need uh, and uh, and to ripe more homogeneously and more nicely and even to make uh, the stems ripe uh, I, I don't know if it's due to uh, global warming or if it's due to us and to the balance that we achieved in the vineyards, but more often we are working even with stems in, in the fermentation. It was more hard in the past to get uh, ripe stems. You know, Nebbiolo have stems that they don't ripe as easily as the Pinot Noir stems. They're always uh, a bit green. But in the last years, we felt that they were ripe enough to, um, to use them also into fermentation. We don't do it systematically, depends. Some vineyards we do it, sometimes uh, we don't. But it became quite a common uh, practice, for, uh, for example. Yeah. Also, you know, there is one thing about 2013 vintage that I, I really liked. Two weeks ago, when we were, we were going in the vineyards and tasting Nebbiolo and deciding what to, what to start picking first, my father made me notice that this year the grapes were still all attached to the plants and the plants, they had already leaves that they were changing colors. So the, the plants, they were not green, but they were already turning uh, goldish and, uh, and red. And, um, and my father told me it's a long time that this doesn't happen. We had a lot of vintages where we picked the grapes perfect with the right acidity, the right ripeness, uh, the right sugar level from plants that that were green and the fact that uh, the plants are turning color it means that the plant uh, it's about is arriving to an end and uh, the, the grapes are still attached so they are really taking everything that the plant has to give up to the to the end so again 2013 can be a, a, a great complex uh, year because uh, because the plant the, the grapes they stayed and they, they they had a rhythm of ripening that was very similar to the rhythm of this of, of the plants Recently, I traveled to Burgundy for the first time. I'd never been before this year, and I tasted out of barrel, and I was surprised, because I've been several times to the Piemonte, how many of the wines were still in Mallow, because what I realized is that I've almost never had a, a red wine in Mallow in the Piemonte. It's only been once or twice, and yet in Burgundy, virtually every cellar I went to, the wines are still in Mallow. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference with uh, Nebbiolo as a grape variety and, and how it goes through Mallow, and if so, what is that difference? So not, not being very technical, I, I don't know how scientifically explain that, but I noticed that uh, as soon as the fermentation finish, usually immediately or after a couple of weeks, the malolactic uh, starts for Nebbiolo. So mm, it happens much earlier than what happened with, uh, with Pinot Noir. We also had some strange years where... Uh, malolactic and uh, alcoholic fermentation happen at the same time. So with Nebbiolo happens earlier. And this is something that uh, every winemaker always favored. We are very happy about that because, we, you know, Nebbiolo has such a high acidity that we prefer that the malolactic happens immediately. So at least we know that uh, then it's over, that it's done. We don't have a volatile acidities. We don't have uh, uh, problems uh, later on. But um, but we are, again, also there, we are doing some experiments. Uh, experiments means that we don't know yet if, if which will be the results. But uh, we are trying to, uh, when the, the alcoholic fermentation finish, maybe to move the wine, the, the barrels in the cooler part of the cellar, try to uh, slow down the, 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 the starting of the malolactic fermentation. This could help, maybe. It's just an idea, one of the many experiments that we do. 
maybe when we have a warm vintage and where we need uh, to keep uh, all the acidity of uh, Nebbiolo, if a malolactic that starts later can, uh, can help. So Angelo Guy is one of the most famous names in, in wine, certainly in Italy. Uh, but there's a, a lesser known name, uh, which is Guido Ravella, the winemaker at Gaia in Piemonte. And I, I wonder, since he started in the 70s and you were around a lot of his tenure there, uh, you know, in terms of your childhood, what, what was Guido like then? What's he like now? Who is Guido Ravella? Guido is uh, is really part of the family. He devotes uh, he devoted all his life to to our winery. He started to work in 1971, so it's uh, more than 40 years that he's with us. And uh, Guido started when he was uh, extremely young because he uh, graduated in winemaking, the same school of my father, but Guido is younger. My father is 73, and if I'm not wrong, Guido is uh, 64, 63, and. Uh, and then after one year, he, after graduating from a wine school, he immediately came uh, to work with us. So the experience of my father and Guido uh, growed together year after year. And Guido, it's very different from my father because uh, my father... Um, he, tra he was traveling a lot and every time he was traveling, he was coming home with new ideas and that he always wanted to apply new ideas. And still now when you talk with my father, his eyes sparkle every time you, you, you mention him something that he never heard about. It's extremely, I like to work with my father because he's very curious. He's not someone that uh, tells you, no, we already did that. Uh, I know that for sure it's not going to work. No, he's always uh, very uh, interested and interested intrigued by uh, new things. So, um, and there is one thing that my father says that he is also in his uh, young age has been very inspired, uh, yes, by France, because my father studied in, in Montpellier, winemaking, but has also incredibly been inspired by California. And so by, uh, by uh, Robert Mondavi, that was uh, a, a legend uh, for him. So for my father to travel to California and see what was going on, thanks to uh, a man that uh, in an area where no one would uh, invest uh, a cent, was uh, trying to produce better and better wines. And he was experimenting and he was trying new technologies to, uh, to do that. This gave a big strength to my father because when he went back home, was uh, an inspiration for him. He said, well, see, uh, uh, every time my father was proposing, maybe let's do green harvest, let's, let's do short pruning, uh, let's try uh, fermenting in a different way. The reply was always, uh, no, we always did it in a certain way. Why should we change? So to see that things were so different and were improving somewhere else uh, gave a strength to my father to do the same in Piemonte. And my father continuously, when was traveling, was then having long discussions with Guido, uh, pushing Guido, we should try this and, and, and this other thing. And Guido, on the other side, is completely the opposite. Guido is uh, much more uh, calm and uh, much more careful uh, in, uh, in uh, bringing on a new technologies, new way of, uh, of doing. So we say that it's like... A, it's like driving a car where my father is constantly on the speed and uh, Guido is con constantly on the brakes. And uh, together they, they manage it for 40 years. And they had uh, often big discussions, but uh, you see, 40 years, uh, it worked. There are several really famous wines that 
come out of the Gaia winery every year. And I think the history of those wines and, and what they are is really well charted already. But there's a few wines that are lesser well known. For instance, you, there's the Dolcetto Pinot Noir blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. That's a wine that uh, we only sell in Italy. It's called uh, Cremes. And um, you know that my father tried with uh, also with international varieties because in 1979 uh, he planted a, a vineyard of Chardonnay. So it was not planted before in Piemonte Chardonnay. Uh, 1983, he planted a vineyard of Sauvignon Blanc. Again, was not planted before. And by the way, there is, for me, an amazing potential for making ageable white wines uh, in Piemonte. We don't have uh, the local varieties uh, really suited to make uh, ageable white wines, uh, even though I tasted some old Arnais uh, or even Moscato, but uh, nothing that can be compared with Nebbiolo. And uh, But there is absolutely potential. And we have the soil, we have the climate, the ethic for making ageable red and uh, I think uh, also ageable white. And then in 1978, actually, the first uh, uh, variety that my father tried with that was not uh, local was uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and we started to produce a wine called Darmaggi. And these are three wines that we still produce and that we are very happy with. The, the, the goal is to make something that to grow uh, alive plants and that they can make something that is the most coherent as possible with the, the area where we are from. And I think that uh, our wines, that they, have, they are Piedmontese. They are like, uh, I say that they are our Cabernet, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc are uh, adopted kids uh, that they started to behave Piedmontese. They speak dialect, that they are different. There is one variety where my father had much more challenges, which is Pinot Noir. <laughs> so he planted Pinot Noir as, as well, but never really succeeded, has never been really satisfied with the final result. But we are still trying and trying. But at the end, we never came out with 100% Pinot Noir. And uh, we came up with a totally different wine that is a Dolcetto and a Pinot Noir, which anyway is a wine we produce uh, uh, 800 Uh, What is it? 800 cases in total, and uh, we sell it only in Italy. For a while, you made a Nebbiolo Nouveau-style wine. What was that about? Yes, uh, Vinot. Vinot is a dialect for a little wine, and uh, I think the first vintage was uh, 78. Um, My father tried to make with the Nebbiolo, a, a novello, like a, like a, like a, say, a Beaujolais Nouveau, a wine that was already released in, uh, in November and actually was the first novello of Italy. Then uh, Antinori started to, the, the year after, Antinori came out with, uh, with the, the novello. And actually after a few years we stopped. And we stopped because we were making a novello that uh, should be drunk uh, in a year time uh, and actually you could age it and you could drink uh, our Vinot uh, after seven, eight, nine years, which proves uh, that uh, Nebbiolo is not meant for uh, an easy drinkable uh, wine, but is meant for uh, aging and that, that is the main potential that the variety has. And so it was a mistake and we went back to making uh, ageable Nebbiolo. And there was a Fraser for a while. And there was a Fraser which was called... Uh, the phrase was called uh, illusion, which uh, again in dialect stays for illusion, uh, in, because uh, was a little wine. It was like uh, an illusion of uh, of a wine. It was not yet uh, a, a wine, and. Uh, um, and actually, is a, a wine that I like, Fraser, uh, very much. 
but um, that uh, we had problems uh, on the market because uh, uh, Fraser is a simple wine and it's, it's a wine that you should drink uh, in, in, when he's uh, very young. And uh, the people were, because it was a Gaia wine, they were buying it and then they were aging it. And then uh, they were complaining because our Fraser was not aging. Uh, maybe now there is a bit more of culture, but Gaia has always been associated because my family for three generation produced only Barbaresco so was really associated with the uh, ageability and ageable wines and so the market was not really accepting the fact that we were making a easier uh, wine and um, so we we stopped producing it as well. So to speak a little bit about the Chardonnay that you mentioned the 1979 sort of move into the production of that you told me once that it was sort of an inverse that the great Chardonnay vintages for the Guy and Ray were the opposite of the great Barbaresco vintages or the great Barolo vintages. So the white would be different than the red. Why do you think that might be? And how did the, the white project get started and where did it get started? The first vineyard of Chardonnay that was planted uh, was planted in, in a vineyard in Treiso. So the area of Barbaresco, it's an area made by, made by three villages, Barbaresco, Neive, Treiso. Treiso is the village that is higher in altitude. So at the time, the highest vineyard that we had in 1979 was in Treiso. And so my father chose that vineyard to plant the Chardonnay because the idea was that it was a bit cooler and that could go better for, uh, for a white grape. In 1988, we added another vineyard in Serralunga which is uh, in the Barolo area and that again Serralunga it's uh, a cooler uh, microclimate it's again a high in altitude and um, so that was the choice of, uh, of, of where to plant um, we had many vintages like for example one of the greatest vintage for Gaia Rai was 1984 which actually I saw here in New York. Uh, the, the, you can find those old bottles more in US than you can find them in uh, in Italy. In 1984, we didn't make uh, any Barbaresco, but we made uh, Gaia Ray. And then again, another vintage was uh, 92, which was not so good for our uh, red wines, but was excellent for Gaia Ray and especially 94. So yes, many years uh, then there are also exceptions because we had 99 and 97, which were excellent both for Gallaret and for uh, and for our red wines. But uh, everything can change the result uh, that you have with Nebbiolo in a month time, in the month of uh, September. Okay, can change in good or in bad. For example, uh, 2007 could really be like 2009, quite a, a, a big, uh, hot uh, year, was saved by the fact that uh, at the end of August and beginning of September, we had a few rains that really saved the, the vintage. And in other times, like for example, 1992, we could have a fantastic 1992. The problem is that, again, we got... Uh, a lot of rains in the month uh, of September at the beginning, which at the end ruined the production of, uh, of uh, Nebbiolo, but didn't ruin Gaillaret because uh, the Chardonnay is the first variety that we pick and sometimes uh, is picked uh, before, uh, before the, the rain comes and ruin the red grapes. When I look out in the vineyards of the Piemonte, I can often tell which vineyards are owned by Gaia because the rows on the hillside go vertically up and down as opposed to horizontally. But it's not always true. 
what is the difference between the horizontal Gaia holdings and the vertical Gaia holdings? Why why did they make the move to do vertical because it's not common? And what is the benefit? Um, the traditional way of planting vineyard is uh, horizontal. It's almost like making terraces. It's a way to prevent uh, the erosion of, uh, of the soil from, from heavy rains. And that's how always vineyards have been planted. Moreover, in the past, uh, all the work was done by animals. So it was much easier for the cow to go right and left than not uh, up and down the rows of these uh, very steep uh, hills that we have. Uh, there is anyway one little problem with the horizontal plantation. When you plant, it's called a girapoggio. When you plant horizontally uh, on the slopes, uh, your rows, it's called a girapoggio. So when you plant a, a girapoggio, you need to leave uh, a little bit more of space between rows. You need to leave at least uh, two meter forty uh, of space because uh, it's steep. And if your rows are too close one with the other, and you are walking uh, uh, through the rows, uh, maybe the soil can move. Uh, and if you immediately have a, a row behind you, then you damage immediately the row that you have. So you need a little bit more of game, a little bit more of space, and that's why. It, Traditionally, the plantation has always been uh, of low density, uh, 4,200, uh, 4,600 plants per hectare. So the idea that my father had was uh, to try to replant with higher density of plants per hectare. He couldn't, he couldn't plant the rows more near one to the other by planting horizontally, but he could do it if uh, he was changing the, the direction. And so he started to plant uh, by vertical plantation. Uh, which is called the Ritocchino, uh, all the vineyard that uh, he had to replant from the 70s uh, on. In this way, the rows can be pl planted more near one to the other. We could reach a density of plants per hectare that goes between 5,800, uh, even 6,000 plants per hectare. And you know that when you plant a higher density, it's a totally different way of managing the vineyard. It's much more uh, homogeneous, uh, the ripening uh, of the plants, of the, of the grapes. If uh, it rains... Uh, uh, during harvest time, uh, the roots, uh, due to the high competition between plants, uh, they had to go deeper faster and uh, they're not going to drink all the water immediately. Or if you're in the month of August uh, and it doesn't rain for weeks, the plants, they don't immediately go in hydric stress, but they, are, uh, they have uh, deeper roots that they can uh, uh, always uh, find uh, some, some water to drink. Also, when the plants are very close one to the other, each plant uh, understands that has a limited amount of soil uh, at disposal. And so it will try to explore it at the maximum potential. It's going to make a lot of baby roots to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to take all it can from, from the soil. So it's also a way to get more of the soil expression into, into the wines. By planting vertically, one problem can be erosion, uh, water taking speed down the, the rows, which is a problem that we solved by always keeping grass uh, alive between the rows and by passing with tractors the less as possible because the more you go with the tractor up and down the more you smash the, the structure of the soil the more you make dust and uh, and then when it rains uh, really you will have a big uh, erosion of uh, of soil 
you know, dust. I just said a word that made me think about, uh, again, how important we learned is, uh, is the grass. There are sicknesses when you have mildew, powdery mildew. Uh, some of the funguses uh, that attacked the, the vineyard, they make spores on the soil. And in the past, uh, when you were working in vineyards, you were never making dust. You were not passing with a tractor and you were not passing so many times because, uh, because you didn't have machine. So you were going in the vineyard uh, much less than what is done today. And so today, by always passing and by making dust, uh, these spores that are in the soil, and especially if you have no grass or if you have very little grass between the rows, they can more easily jump on the plant. This year we have been... We, we have, we have, it's also a matter of luck and we have been lucky because few things uh, really by, by chance we have been able of doing it at the right time and uh, in, in the month of uh, May of June with all the heavy rains that uh, we had the fact that we, have, we had high grass in between rows turned to be actually a barrier for uh, funguses, for spores uh, to get on the plant. We had much less uh, attack of uh, mildew and powdery mildew than um, we could have had. One of the great vintage summaries of the Pimonte that I ever read was written by your father where he went vintage by vintage of the older vintages and really talked about his personal experience of them, sometimes contrary to what people commonly would think about those vintages. And it was really firsthand, really interesting information. I was wondering if you might give us a run through of some of the more more recent vintages from your perspective, but specifically how they might be drinking now and whether uh, a vintage that is a few years old, what point it might be? Is it shut down? Is it open and fruity? Is it need more time for a reason other than that? What, what should I be thinking about with the current run of vintages? Allora, by starting from the most recent, you understood how happy I am about 2013. I think uh, balance, complexity can come out from this vintage. 2012 and 2011 uh, will be a little bit, uh, both of them can be considered warm vintages. So a little bit more uh, fruit forward uh, vintages, especially 2011. 2010, it's a vintage of... Uh, mm, is a classic vintage. Uh, it's not a fruit forward, uh, it's not austere in tannins, it's very precise. Uh, that's why it's classic. Uh, it's very focused. You have a, a very good expression of, uh, of Nebbiolo. And uh, 2010 Barbaresco can be beautiful to drink right now. Um, I have my own uh, way of drinking uh, Barbaresco, no? which is different from Barolo. But with Barbaresco, as uh, it's softer in tannins uh, and it is very ethereal and floral, uh, I really like to drink it uh, immediately when it's released. Uh, so I look uh, at the vintage that is on the label and I count four. So 2010, until that is re it's released now, until the end of 2014, in my opinion, will be, by my experience, will be blossoming, will be uh, alive. It's like uh, I compare it to a, a kid of uh, two years old, uh, smiling to everyone, uh, full of energy, jumping on a chair. If you drink the Barbaresco 2010, now is uh, like that. Uh, it's very enjoyable, very perfumed. Then uh, the wine has a shutdown. 
it's exactly like uh, when you get uh, 13, 14, 15 years old, uh, when you start to have a really an attitude, uh, you start to reply badly to your parents, you slam doors, you lock yourself in the room, you don't want to talk with everyone. Nebbiolo also has that moment of attitude where you don't want to be around. For example, 2009, in my opinion, is getting there. And even 2008 and even 2007, even 2006, uh, maybe I would not I will not drink them uh, now. You you may have a great experience or not. There is a big uh, question mark. Um, if you want to really be sure that the wine is uh, not is going to be performing and will not disappoint you, will not be with attitude, you have to wait at least seven, eight years from the vintage that you see on the label. It's beautiful to drink right now. It's opening up 2000 and. Uh, uh, for 2001 is beautiful whatever is in the 90s uh, is uh is is just beautiful right now i like especially to drink wines when they are between 10 to 20 years old that's the period where you where you can enjoy both the youth and the complexity so um, looking at uh, th th there is a, a funny thing easy to remember is that to compare 2009 to 99 there are some si similarities so 09 has a, a big tanning structure like 99 and generally the more tannic vintages are those vintages that they need that they have a, a longer period where they are shut down i don't think that a vintage like a 2010 which that has a lot of acidity but soft tannins will stay shut for really seven years maybe it will be shorter that period of time so 2009 has a similar austere tanning structure of 99 as well as the 2008 uh, is a beautifully balanced delicate vintage like 98 and 2007 uh, it's a more lush and fruit forward vintage like 97 and 2006 has a high acidity and austerity like 96 had still are quite different but uh, mm, it can be a way to uh, to remember them so after quite a bit of success in the Piemonte uh, your dad decided to move into Montalcino and have a winery producing Brunello de Montalcino and then later into Bulgari why do you think those progressions happened and why there and then many different uh, reasons uh, in the 90s uh, my father first of all he started to receive uh, uh, some invitation by other producers to do joint venture with uh, with them to do a joint venture maybe in California or in Chile uh, or, or even in Italy but uh, our whole proposal that uh, he thought a lot about it and then at the end uh, he didn't do but this already opened a little bit his mind because he started thinking about doing it and about uh, trying new, to make wine in, in other regions. Um, what happened in the early 90s is that we had uh, a lot of tough vintages. We had a 91 where we didn't produce uh, Costa Rossi, Sori Tildin, Sori San Lorenzo. We had a and, and we dropped the quantity of Barbaresco. We had a 92 where we didn't make any wine apart from Gaia Rey, uh, and Altini di Brassica, which is our Sauvignon Blanc. And then we had a 93 where uh, we had to cut over 50% the production. We were not satisfied with the, how the grapes uh, were, were ripe. And then in 94, again, the single vineyard didn't come out. So... From one side, my father was thinking about uh, doing something new. On the other side, uh, we were uh, held back by uh, the weather in Piemonte. 
And that's why uh, when finally he decided to do something new, he didn't think about doing it again in Piemonte, but he looked for some other different uh, areas. There were savings into the bank, which were also a good help because uh, you had to think, uh, my father used the savings always into the business and they were there and so we could use them. And uh, and then there was me, there was my sister, but in 93, my brother was born. So there was the complete family uh, now and uh, my father was was very excited. Very scared about uh, touching Gaia because uh, because it was working beautifully as it was. And so we didn't want to ruin what uh, we had. And instead of adding uh, new vineyards to uh, to our Barbaresco property, which means uh, enlarging the winery, having a bigger team, uh, which was uh, scary, uh, he decided to start all over from zero somewhere else. Montalcino was the first step in 94 and uh, he was not even searching yet for for a property specifically in Montalcino but uh, it was a jewel that was offered to us it was a great opportunity and uh, as much as my grandfather has been great in selecting land in Barbaresco that was the village that my grandfather knew at the, the best my father has really been great in selecting Pieve Santa Restituta is a property that uh, that has all the potential to uh, to make uh, a, a great Brunello. We, we don't focus, we don't put our attention in trying to make an IGT or trying to make a Rosso di Montalcino, but we devote uh, all our strength in trying to make uh, what I, we think that the property can make at the best, which is Brunello. We confirmed uh, all the old team that was working there because they are very precious to us. They are our historic memory of a place where we are new. We make a lot of mistakes, so there are a lot of vintages that we didn't produce. We didn't make Renina and Sugarille, which are our two uh, Brunello, in 2002, in 2003, in 2005. Next year we will don't come out with 2009. So maybe are the vintages that were tough. Maybe we, we don't have the experience always to perform at the best. But we also do the sacrifice of not releasing them. So we have the ambition, which is I hope is not seen as arrogance, of uh, becoming maybe one day a leader where we are. Um, Kamarkanda, totally different story. That uh, happened two years after in uh, Bulgari. And Bulgari, it's an area that is, uh, is the California of Italy, is the new world of Italy. Th there is an expression in Italian, which uh, is very difficult, I think, for people in the US to understand because it's a different culture. But uh, I will try to, to say it. When you marry the right guy or the right uh, girl, when uh, you start a business and that business goes great, uh, there is a way of saying in Italian, we say, uh, wow, you're so lucky, you discovered America. <laughs> and this has, and, and you don't have an idea of what America represents. America is something that doesn't even exist, uh, exists only in the mind of Italian people. America is uh, a land of uh, hope, uh, of a bright future, of opportunity. Everyone had uh, an uncle or a relative that uh, left Italy, went to America, wherever that was, uh, and made uh, a better life. So, our America is. Uh, Bulgari, uh, without having to, to go 6,000 miles far from Barbaresco, we founded our America 300 kilometers south of, um, of Barbaresco. And my father is, uh, is, uh, is uh, because I told you how always he's excited about new things, uh, for him, uh, his dream of modernity 
which he believes, and, and, and I agree with that, that uh, all the wines that we can taste today, all the amazing wines that we can taste today, even the most uh, traditional wines that you can have in Italy or in Spain, uh, if they are great, uh, is thanks to modernità. Modernity in every point of view. Modernity in um, even 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 the market. It's a modern market, which is a market that responded and uh, leaded us and pushed us to try to to make uh, always better. You know that if you make a wine uh, in Barbaresco and you drink it in Barbaresco. And even the attitude of the producers is different. In the past, uh, there was a, one producer was only drinking his wine, was not even drinking the wine of the neighbor. There is much more open-mindedness today, which I consider a, a very modern uh, attitude of, uh, of producers. And even the way of making wine. Uh, modernita, modernity is something that uh, helped everyone to make more clear wines, wines that they could be more, uh, more clearly uh, uh, re reflecting the, the purity of, uh, of the fruit without uh, uh, dirty uh, characters that often you had uh, in the past. So, um, and, and, this, uh, and this I think uh, that US helped as a market, uh, as a place where innovation uh, were, uh, uh, were brought on, uh, helped uh, the European producers also to improve. So uh, Bulgaria could be a place where uh, we could find our new world without stepping on the toes of anyone. There was not a tradition that uh, we had to follow uh, or we had to go against. Bulgaria is uh, the new world with all the good and the bad that uh, there is. There is no tradition, there are not local varieties, but was also a, a very welcoming and very open to people even coming from Piemonte to go there and start uh, something new. So it's a place that uh, where my father felt uh, passionate uh, immediately. And I'm, I'm really sorry that at the time I was too young to understand that. I was 16, 17 years old, and he was really trying to make me understand how precious was, how important was for him to do something from zero, to, to choose uh, a piece of land and to, to divide it, to map it all and decide how and what to plant, to, to build a team from the first person on, to build a winery. So as for me, it took a little bit more time to fall in love with Bulgari. And I don't know why, because it's, it's just a, the look, is a, a paradise, is a beautiful area. Uh, he uh, was passionate since uh, day one. When I speak with an older generation of restaurateurs in the United States, a lot of them tell me Guy would come and he wouldn't just promote his own wines, he promoted Italy. He would talk about Italian made. He would talk about the craftsmanship of Italy because he thought that if Italy could be seen at a higher level of the market, his wines could be understood within that framework rather than just thinking them as simple wines, enjoyable, but, but kind of rustic. He wanted Italy to be at the same reputational level as France. When I spoke with you a while ago, one of the things you told me is that Italy is a country of artisans. And I almost felt like I was talking to your dad for a minute. Hmm. What do you think about that? And how is the artisan economy helping or hurting today, Italy on the world stage? I think that the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest thing of Italy 
are not the, the different kind of terroir that we have or the different varieties that we have, but the greatest uh, richness of Italy is uh, the, the social uh, structure of the, of the wine industry. This really belongs uh, to us, an artisanal, uh, uh, the, the number of artisans. Now, I, I don't know if the, I don't remember the precise number. At least there are uh, 35,000 producers of, uh, of wine uh, in Italy. Family owned, uh, small, uh, really, really artisans uh, producing the grapes, uh, making the wine, uh, taking care of everything inside uh, by, them, by themselves. This is the greatness uh, of Italy because uh, artisans uh, they uh, like to put themselves behind uh, what they do they are big individualistic people and italian people are individualistic in, in, in bad or in in good uh, everyone wants to follow his own path and to do his things at the best and think to be the best respect uh, respect to the others so usually new things uh, innovations uh, they don't start from the industry they start from the artisans uh, that they have to risk a little bit and that maybe they they risk because they have because they don't think about the the profit that they can get in a year time and that's where it becomes important the family because uh, because the different way of working the the the, the rhythm of uh, of running an agriculture business are much slower than any other kind of business that you can have and uh, the fact that uh, if you want to achieve the best results you have to to think about the long term and a family uh, can do that uh, better uh, than other uh, structures of um, of companies so um, Artisans, also because they have small quantity, I guess, they, and because they, have, they are moved by a great passion, they can try new pets and, uh, uh, and uh, they surely don't risk a, a big quantity. They will always be able of selling the little quantity they produce, even if most of the market uh, won't like it. They, 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 they don't play in the safe ground. They always try to do something different. And that's why, thanks to the artisans that are the salt of the industry, Italy becomes a melting pot of, uh, of ideas and uh, people, they always try to do things a different way. And there is the one that uh, likes to macerate for uh, two months uh, the skins with the juice and the other one that uh, uh, tries to uh, totally different way of managing the vineyards and the other one that tried to blend more and more varieties together and each one tries something different that can be inspiring for uh, for others. I think in this country, a lot of times we think of Gaia and we think of, of Angelo Gaia, the person, the personality, the force, the marketing, prescience, the quality and the wines. Uh, but there was a previous guy, there was Giovanni Gaia, uh, Angelo's dad, and he was alive till 2002 which yeah. means that you would have known him. Yeah. And what was he like? My grandfather, uh, you said before that my father always promoted uh, Italy. That's what people uh, say on the market. They never promote his own wine, but Italy in general. And I think that he learned that by my grandfather. My grandfather was, uh, for me, I never heard him once uh, talking bad about anyone. Even though the moment when he was living and making wine were much more confusing moments and there was a lot of fake wines made with the wine that was coming from the south of Italy and uh, 
and uh, there were also frauds much more than today uh, my grandfather was was never talking bad about the others was uh, confident in what he was doing and uh, he uh, was uh, confident in the fact that his wine was uh, different and that's it and this is an attitude beautiful that also my father has and that and that I like because it's a very respectful uh, attitude we always talk about this word respect respect of nature uh, respect of of, uh, of a heritage but also respect for uh, for the others so just to give a good example and then uh, the other people will uh, will follow so my my father Mm, talking about uh, artisans and I was saying about everyone following his own paths and try to do things differently. I think that the, the greatest contribution of my father all over his life is this one of uh, being always... Uh, Mm-hmm. of always engaging a conversation uh, of uh, pushing forward the industry to face uh, that there were a new way of uh, doing things and you know that every time uh, you, you try a new path and you do things different doesn't matter if those are the best or simply are the different uh, way of doing it uh, then the industry is obliged to, to talk about it and you can have people that are against you or with you but uh, things improve uh, by, by a, a confrontation uh, I remember when we saw each other a few months ago, I, I, I think I told you about uh, the, 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 the term uh, tradition and modernism, two terms uh, that in my opinion nowadays, thankfully, they, 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 we don't need to use anymore in describing the wine of, uh, of Piemonte. And are two terms that often I felt a bit uncomfortable in using because... Um, are terms that they always change meaning uh, while uh, years are passing by. I mean that uh, when my father started to make wine uh, 52 years ago, things uh, were very different from today. And when you were referring to a wine and you were saying that it was a very traditional wine, uh, unfortunately it was not often a, a good meaning because that term, a traditional, always meant that uh, the wine was made with grapes that... Uh, they were not fully ripe, that uh, there was not so much structure into the wine, that there was bitterness and no sweetness, uh, or maybe that uh, often there was a, a stinky wood character that was an old wood uh, present into the wine. And to all of that arrived a reaction, and uh, the reaction was uh, try to achieve a full ripeness of the grapes, uh, try to have a clean cellar, try to have uh, some healthy and uh, new wood. And uh, little by little came uh, this uh, term, a modern wine, which was uh, la modernità, something that showed uh, uh, cleanness and clarity and uh, purity into the wine without uh, uh, old wood or uh, really unripe. Uh, tannins but balanced and so that was a good meaning and then there has been a phase where uh, the tradition uh, the traditionalist the most traditionalist producer by watching that some people were doing differently they also understood which were their limits and they improved uh, with that and uh, maybe who was trying to make uh, a wine in, in a new style more modern went a little bit too far so suddenly tradition became a good meaning because were wines much more connected with the with the roots and with the um, the, the, the the character of, of uh, and the culture of our land and uh, modernist uh, wines started to be uh, described uh, wines in, in in a bad way wines wines that were 
too overripe, not only ripe, too much covered by a new wood. And uh, and again, there is a coming back, I think, when uh, who went too far by watching uh, the traditionalist uh, understood that went too far and has to find the uh, lost balance. So this is the reason why in Piemonte right now there is an incredible quality uh, overall. Uh, I can name so many producers come to my mind in Barolo and uh, Barbaresco that are making uh, great wines. And how is the reception in the New York market? Part of your job for the winery is to travel to different markets. You once told me you travel a week every month into different areas. What, do we get a good representation here in New York of, of Barolo and of Piemonte? Or what is our view that's maybe different than the view you see there? Well, as a market, uh, as a market New York is the most historic uh, market uh, for us in the U.S. Because uh, my father told me that the first time he came to U.S. was uh, 68. And that uh, the first uh, meeting he had was uh, here in New York at uh, Charlie Lehman. And uh, the the, 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 the why he started in New York because there was an Italian uh, based uh, culture and also the most important merchants of wine were based in, uh, in New York and were Jewish companies Sherry Lehman, uh, Zakis uh, and so when my father went to meet uh, the owner of Sherry Lehman's in 1968 and he was welcomed in a very kind way, he remembers that the owner opened for him a bottle of Bollinger and they drank it together and then uh, the man tried the wine of my father and congratulated with the wines and he said that he liked them very much but he also said that the market uh, was not ready so I didn't buy the wines <laughs> but that the, my father had to insist and that uh, if uh, was gonna he said Angel if, if you come in 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 uh, US and you will explain your wines and you will work hard you will see that uh, this will be a market that will reward you and this is exactly what uh, what happened little by by little US is the most important uh, market for wine and will continue to be it at least for other 20 years uh, there is a lot of talking of Asia for example but uh, here is where there is a culture for wine there is a culture for food because in 1968 things were very different from uh, from today but now there is a deep also culture and is growing uh, culture for uh, for food and there is uh, an appreciation for uh, Nebbiolo more and more that niche uh, of lovers of, of Barolo and Barbaresco that has always been tiny uh, I, I can't imagine how tough it was uh, 50 years ago to, to travel the world and explain Nebbiolo, which was a variety that uh, the media were never talking about because there was, uh, there was not space for it. And there was a uh, space for, uh, for other regions, for Bordeaux, maybe for Champagne. You know, Italy was, uh, was the land. Uh, the only value of Italy is that in Italy at the time was possible to produce uh, cheap and cheerful wines. Uh, was the land of Lambrusco, of the cheapest uh, Soave in Chianti and, uh, and that's it. Well, there was a little niche of lovers of Barolo and Barbaresco has always been a sophisticated niche, sophisticated because uh, they had really to know from whom to buy, which vintages to buy. If in the past, you didn't have so many good vintages as we have today. So if you were uh, a, an average drinker and you were going in a shop and you were buying a bottle of Barbaresco 62 or 63, maybe you were never going back on a Barbaresco. If you knew, you were buying a 61, a 64, a 67. That's it in, uh, in the 60s. So lately, 
thanks to the fact that there are much better vintages. Uh, year after year, people could release uh, constantly better quality wines. Uh, is growing the number of the producers that are producing well. So it's enlarging also the number of people that are loving Barolo and Barbaresco. And there is a trend going, there are always trends, and uh, there is a trend going in direction of, uh, again, more uh, delicate uh, wines. After years uh, where the trend was more in direction of uh, full body, rich, uh, uh, big wines, now I feel that uh, there is an appreciation for uh, delicacy. And I don't know if it's uh, simply a trend, if people, and some people, they really understand it, maybe some, some they don't, they just follow the trend. But it's a trend where Nebbiolo fits uh, beautifully. So it's a very beautiful moment, this one, for, um, for our wines. So you, as a younger woman, knew Romano Levi, the grappa producer, who made grappa from the mark that your, your dad gave him. And, yeah. and how, how was he as a person? What was he like? Me as a young woman, I don't have a lot of experience with grappa, <laughs> so I, I I didn't drink a lot of his grappa. But uh, I, uh, as I was saying before to you, Romano Levi is uh, my hero. It's a man that uh, I I really loved because it's a man that remained pure in a world that was becoming more and more contaminated around him. It was a very humble and uh, maybe even a naive uh, person, a, a, a poet. And uh, unfortunately, in the last years, uh, he had many people that they were gravitating around him, that they were using him. Uh, but he remained always uh, so clean, a candid uh, man. And uh, I have really a lot of memory from him because he was living close uh, home. He is from uh, Neve. And uh, he has been, for, he made me one of the most beautiful gifts I ever received in my life. So I was born in May and I was born the 10th of May, but was a natural born, born, yeah, born. And uh, actually it was a very, I, I was not coming out. So he, he, my mother had to wait and wait and wait. And um, Romano Levi asked to my father when I was going to come. And, and my father said, well, I don't know, maybe, I think it's between the end of April and the beginning of, uh, of May. And Romano Levi, every morning, 1979, it's my year, woke up for a month and took a picture of the rising sun because he didn't know he wanted to take the rising sun of my, of my birthday. And um, a man la month later, when my father went to visit Romano, Romano came uh, to my father with a, a big uh, pile of uh, a lot of different pictures. And, uh, and so said, look, so when was she born? 10 of May. And so he started to turn all the pictures, trying to get to my uh, day. And all the rising sun were beautiful, but the 10 of May was cloudy. And some people say, of course, when you were born, there was a storm. <laughs> and, uh, and, Rom and my father was so happy to have the picture and he didn't care if it was cloudy or not. And Romano said, uh, very disappointed, said, no, but I'm so sorry, Angelo. No, no, it doesn't matter. It's fantastic. No, I'm very sorry. So he took the picture, he turned it and he wrote, but the sun will win the clouds. And he was a person that uh, was exactly like this. Whatever he was saying was meaningful, was something that you could uh, remember. Even though he's a man that never traveled in his life, didn't have a drive license. For all his life, he lived in his house. And then early in the morning, he was walking at the bar and he was having breakfast and walking back home. And that's all his world. 
and any any anyway was so wise. He was um, a, a big lover of animals. So his house, uh, uh, for example, you were entering in his house, there were webs everywhere. He was never taking out the webs because we're from the spiders and he was respecting spiders. So there were these huge old webs uh, all over. Um, uh, the, 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 the road that was bringing you to his house uh, had a little sign. There was a sign saying, be careful, ant crossing. And you were looking down and yes, there there were the ants crossing and you had to stop and to make a bigger step <laughs> to go on the other side. He had um, a little, uh, it looked like a little lake near his house. And in that lake, there was a, una carpa. Carpa is like a, is like a catfish. And there was this catfish living in the in this little lake, and um, and was completely uh, trained. When uh, when Romano was walking near the lake, the, the the catfish was going near him and was eating from his uh, his uh, hand. Was was really special, uh, unique uh, man. And you know that he was making grappa with the live fire in the old in the old way. So there was the fire directly in contact with the alambic. And um, he was not uh, using petrol, uh, he was not uh, using wood. Uh, to start the fire, he was using his own uh, skins. So it was a 100% cycle, recycling. So he was buying uh, or getting from free the, the skins from the producers. Then he was making grappa. And then with the leftovers, he was drying those skins and used them to start the fire, to warm up the house. Uh, and uh, he had a little box uh, where he was keeping matches. And uh, once he told me that uh, that uh, little box where all the matches were was a, a box that he had since the day first that he started to make grappa. And every year he was using only one match to start the fire. And that uh, he didn't want to finish making grappa. But in that box, the matches, actually, they, they, they were already finished twice. But he was always filling it up with other new matches <laughs> because he wanted to continue for many other years to make uh, grappa. You know that uh, there is one last story that I really like about Romano. There is, uh, because every label was different. Every label was a poetry. One year, uh, someone came to his... Um, to his house uh, uh, asking for grappa and he just came out from the house he didn't even open the, the gate and he said uh, he, he put the hands up and he started waving and saying no no grappa is finished I have no more grappa and this group of German people they said no please but and they saw that on one window or outside his house, there was a bottle of grappa. And so through the gate, they pointed the, the, the bottle and they said, that, g give us that, we want to buy that. And so Romano approached and showed the, showed the bottle and said, look, I can't, I can't sell it to you, this grappa, because when I, was, when, when I was bottling, and he was all bottling manually, when I was bottling, a mosquito went inside. So can you see that in this bottle, there is a mosquito at the end of the bottle? I can't sell it to you. No, we want it, please. I, I want that grappa with a mosquito. So Romano took a piece of paper and he wrote grappa with mosquito. And the year after, there were people coming and asking for grappa with mosquito. <laughs> and so every time someone was coming and asking the grappa with mosquito, he was uh, cutting a piece of paper and he was writing grappa with invisible mosquito. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Gaia Gaia, she's sharing beautiful moments at the winery in Piemonte and in Tuscany. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. 
The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.